Good morning, good morning, good morning. It is so good to be together with all of you today, worshiping God and studying His Word. Today, we're continuing our survey of the book of Romans. And throughout this series, we've been considering what Paul taught believers in Rome and teaches us about God, about our relationship with Him, and about how we should live our lives as believers of Jesus Christ. And in our lesson today, Paul is going to teach us some Roman math. No, not that kind of Roman math. That's not what he's going to teach us. The Roman math that Paul wants us to learn today is this. Humility plus service equals love. Throughout our passage today, Paul weaves together these three concepts. Humility service, and love. He shows how they work together, how they really cannot be separated, and how serving others in humility is the most effective way we can teach others about the love of Jesus Christ. Since Paul is intertwining these three concepts throughout the entire passage, I think the best way to approach this today is to go through the full passage and then we'll break it down a little piece by piece. So Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself as more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to one is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. The highlight of our passage today comes in the middle in verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Paul is directing us to a better, fuller, practical understanding of Christian love. Not romantic love, not the kind of love between a husband and wife, not even the kind of love that we might have for our family. Paul is looking at a broader meaning of love, the love that we as believers in Jesus Christ should have for those around us. Love that oozes out of us because of the immense, overwhelming, unlimited, unconditional love that Jesus has shown us. 
When we fully love Jesus, when we understand what he has done for us, and when we embrace the loving plan that God the Father has put into place for us, our love for the Savior should be reflected in the way we live, and specifically reflected in the way that we treat other people. The Gospel of John teaches us that the distinguishing mark of Christians, the way that non-believers will know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ, is the way that we love one another. And Paul's purpose in our passage today is to get us to understand what that kind of love looks like so that we can love others better. And in the process, so that those we show that kind of love to will come to know Jesus' love as well. The first concept we need to wrap our heads around as we dive into what Paul is teaching us today is that love is not a feeling. When Paul talks about love, he's not talking about an emotion. He's talking about a choice, an attitude, an approach to life. Loving other people is a choice. We don't love others because we're overcome with emotion for them. We love others because we choose to do so, because God commands us to do so, and because we have experienced the love of Jesus and we know what a difference it makes in our own lives. So as faithful believers, we're both blessed and compelled to share God's love with others. When Jesus was asked, what are the two most important command, what is the most important commandment? Jesus gave two commandments, love God and love one another. For Jesus, they were one and the same commandment. They were two sides of the same coin. They could not be separated. If we love God, we must love one another. So Jesus taught us to love each other, to choose to love each other, to compassionately and righteously pursue the well-being of others, not because of our relationship with them, but solely because they're children of God. The choice to love someone goes beyond any feelings we have for them and instead depends almost entirely in the feelings we have for God. If we love God, we choose to love one another. And when we do so, others experience God's love, even if in just some small way. And in the process, God is glorified. As true followers of Jesus, we need no other reason to show love to others. Okay, but what does that look like? Probably the most famous explanation of what love in action looks like comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, sometimes called the love passage. And lots of us have probably heard this passage, and in some ways that's kind of a problem. Because the context in which we normally hear the Christian definition of love is usually at a wedding or in some sort of expression of the love between husband and wife. And the definition that Paul gives us here absolutely applies to marriage, no question about it, or at least it better if you want your marriage to last, right? But that's a very specific application of this definition, and it's not the application that Paul intended when he wrote this passage. 
So listen now to Paul's description of love, and as you do it, think about it not in the context of a wedding or a husband and wife relationship. Think about it in the context of the love that God is asking to show the people around us. Here's how Paul defined love. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Ay, 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 right? I mean, in the traditional context of a husband and wife, that description is awfully difficult to fulfill. How much more so in the context of your neighbor or your coworker, someone do you do not know or someone you do not like? What about in the context of someone who cuts you off in traffic or speaks evil about you or commits evil against you? Mm-mm. Come on, there we go. Paul includes the echoes of this definition of love in the passage we're studying today. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. That's God's standard of love. And that's the standard that Paul is encouraging us to strive for if we're really disciples of Jesus. Now, if you're like me, your immediate reaction to that standard might be, how in the world am I supposed to do that? On my best day, with people that I truly love, my wife, my family, my friends, I fall so far short of that standard. How am I supposed to meet that standard with people I don't have the same level, of, of the same relationship with the same level of love for? Or with people for whom the closest feeling I have for them often makes me want to reach out and kick them in the shins? That's where Paul's Roman math comes into play. Humility plus service equals love. Well, let's break down that equation. First, humility. If I'm going to make the choice to love someone else, I need to think less of myself and more of them. If I'm the biggest deal in my life, if my life centers around me and not others, there's no way I will ever meet God's standard of love. For me to love correctly by God's standards, I must put others first, and that's humility. Listen again to what Paul says as he introduces this passage. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. And then again toward the end of the passage, honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. What Paul is describing here is humility. Humility is the personal characteristic of seeing yourself in the proper perspective, of correctly understanding who you are and who you are not. And there's two components to humility. The first component is a vertical component. 
To show humility means to have a proper understanding of who we are in relation to God. Humility means making God the Lord of our lives, submitting ourselves to him, following his teachings, not just when they're convenient or when we agree with them, but in every aspect of our lives. Humility is acknowledging that God is everything and I am nothing. That everything I am, everything I do comes from God. And that without submitting myself to God and allowing him to be actively engaged in each and every aspect of my life, I'm nothing. Humility is acknowledging and accepting my dependency on God for all things. I am the vine and you are the branches, Jesus tells us in John 15. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That kind of humility, the Bible tells us, gives us wisdom and leads to honor. For the Lord takes delight in his people. He crowns the humble with victory. Humility also has a horizontal component. In this sense, humility means understanding who you are in relation to others. Now, we're not in competition here. You're not going to weigh the merits of your life with the merits of the lives of those around you. That's not what this means. It's a question of priorities. Much like the decision to love, this kind of humility is an attitude, a decision to intentionally place the needs of others ahead of our own needs. In his letter to the church at Philippi, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Peter echoes Paul's sentiments. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So in Paul's equation, to get to true Christian love, we start with humility. Humility in our relationship with God, humility in our relationship with others. The second component in Paul's equation is service. And interestingly, Paul begins his discussion of this element of service by going back to humility. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. Here, Paul is telling us to make a realistic assessment of who we are and to remember that God is the one who equipped each of us to do the work that he's called us to. When Paul uses the word faith here, he's not talking about our belief in God. When Paul says faith in this passage, he's talking about our faithfulness to the call that God has given us and our faithful stewardship of the gifts that God has given us. God has provided every believer the exact gifts and resources he or she needs to fulfill their roles in the body of Christ. That's what faith is referring to here. We must have the faith to see ourselves the way God sees us, realistically, with realistic limitations, 
but also as people who are called and gifted by God to do the work that he's planned for us. Work that he planned for us before we were even born. And we also must have the faith to accept the gifts that God has given us and to use those gifts in the way God intends. When we try to apply our gifts in a way that God never intended, we actually question God's wisdom and sovereignty in how he has gifted us. And similarly, when we fail to exercise the gifts that God has given us in the way that he intends, we reject God's divine plan for our lives, and we reject his authority over our lives. And when we do that, we end up on the sidelines with an ineffective faith that has no impact on the world around us. So what Paul is telling us here is, take a humble look at yourself and the gifts that God has given you and use those gifts in the way that he intended. And then Paul tells us why. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. As believers in Jesus Christ, we must make a humble, realistic assessment of ourselves because we're not in this alone. We are part of a body of believers. God's plan was never to have lone wolf believers, believers who kept their faith to themselves and never made an impact on the world. God's plan has always been for believers to work together in order to fulfill what we call God's kingdom agenda. God's kingdom agenda is his plan to give unbelievers a little taste of what heaven is going to be like by showing them the joy that we experience as believers when we give our lives to Jesus. And in order to achieve that plan, God has sovereignly given the whole body of Christ, each one of us, what John MacArthur calls a unified diversity. Unity of believers, each one of us acting together as a body in the way that God intends is absolutely necessary to show non-believers the joy of submitting ourselves to God. But diversity within that unity <clears throat> is also absolutely essential. Excuse me. Just because we're unified does not mean that we're all alike. We're all part of a body, but we all have a different role to play within that body. Everyone has a place in God's kingdom, in his heavenly kingdom and in his earthly kingdom. And everyone should use the gifts that God has given us to further that kingdom. So Paul goes on then to explain how that unified diversity works by noting just some of the gifts God gives to believers. Gifts like teaching and serving, giving, encouragement, showing mercy, practicing hospitality. These are what we call spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are the gifts and the talents and the skills and the predisposition that God has given to each of us. And he gives us those gifts specifically so that we can accomplish the plans that he has for us during our time on earth. 
Spiritual gifts are how God and his sovereignty and in his infinite wisdom specifically designed each one of us so that we could work together with other believers to show God's love in the way we live our lives and to do so so that those who do not yet know God will come to know him and will want to love him in the way we do. Now, Paul doesn't give us a complete list of spiritual gifts here. He only points out a couple of examples, and we don't have time today to go into what each of these spiritual gifts is. But understanding how God has gifted you to do his kingdom work is an essential part of becoming a mature Christian. And I strongly encourage everyone to take the time to learn exactly the gifts that God has given you. One way to do that is through a spiritual gifts assessment that's on our website. And you can get to that at outlookchurch.org gifts. But for our purposes today, there's two main takeaways about what Paul is telling us here about spiritual gifts. First, spiritual gifts are gifts. They're given to us by God. We did nothing to deserve them, and we can do nothing to earn them. They are freely given us by God. We can refine them, we can develop them, but we can do nothing to earn them or deserve them. So in humility, we need to accept the gifts by God, and I'm going back to verse 3 here, with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of us. So then, we accept our spiritual gifts for what they are, a gracious gift from God, specifically selected by him for us to do the work that he has planned for us. And again, in humility, we don't desire other gifts or question why we were given some gifts and not given others. We don't ask that question because God is God and we are not. And when we submit our lives to him, that includes submitting our desires the way he has gifted us and placed us into his kingdom. The second thought from Paul here about spiritual gifts is probably even more important. Although they're gifts and they're given to us by God and we do nothing to earn them or deserve them, we are absolutely responsible for how we use them. We can choose to use our spiritual gifts, or we can choose not to. We can exercise them for God's glory, for our personal glory, or for some entirely ungodly purpose. Whatever our gifts are, Paul reminds us to use them faithfully, generously, diligently, cheerfully. If we want to become mature, fruitful believers, we can't ignore our spiritual gifts. We can't waste them. We have to put them to work for God's purposes. Paul says, we should never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. And that means we have to be constantly using our spiritual gifts in the way that God intended, making it a priority in our lives to do the work that God has planned for us and relying on the Holy Spirit to use those gifts to accomplish his purposes. Let me, let me give you an example something we deal with all the time in our ministry down at Post and 42nd. Paul specifically mentions the gifts of encouragement, leadership, and teaching. 
And the folks who volunteer down at Renewal, they're using those spiritual gifts almost every day. Much of our ministry revolves around teaching and leading and encouraging people, both kids and adults. It's what we would loosely call mentoring. Showing people the right way and helping them avoid the wrong way, or sometimes helping them get back on the right track after they've chosen the wrong way in the past. Now, somewhere along the line in my training for my work at Renewal or in the work that I've been doing there, I don't know where this come from, but somebody told me everyone is going to be mentored. Every single person will be mentored. The question that we have to deal with in ministry is are they going to be mentored toward God and his purposes or away from God and his purposes? And as I evaluate what we do at Renewal, as I look at our programs and think about the people that we have relationships with, as I consider what we're doing and what we need to do better, this is the question that keeps me awake at night. Are we going to be the ones who provide the leadership and the teaching and the encouragement that will reach the people we serve? Or is it going to be the dealers and the gang leaders, the folks who run the streets and have given up on ever following God. And I can get very specific people in my head, people that I know have been chewed up and spit out by the system over and over again. Kids that I know are going to fail at school, not because they're not smart enough, but because the education system they've been put into knows even before they're in fifth grade, they're not gonna make it. And when I think about folks like that, I ask, where are these people going to turn when all else fails? Will they turn to us or will they turn to the street life? And how is it that what we can offer them is better than the street life? And how do we ever explain that to them? And I got to tell you, the only place that I can turn when I start down that path is into the loving arms of Jesus I can't do that. I can't bear that responsibility. Renewal can't do that. We could plan the greatest programs ever. We could be diligent and loving. We could do everything we can to meet every need that comes in the door. But on our own, we cannot convince people to choose good over evil. But God can a loving, omnipotent God whose plan is good and pleasing and perfect, He can. And He has gifted every single person that walks in the, re the door of renewal exactly the way He wants them. And when we put our faith in Him, and when we make use of the gifts that He's given us, and trust Him to use those gifts to accomplish His purposes, we know that He will do so. Because God always completes the good things he started. And God can do all things but fail. And so we turn to him again and again, recognizing in total humility who he is and who we are and who we are not. And then we serve. We serve faithfully. We serve humbly. We serve in love. And we rely on God to do what only God can do. That, I think, is what Paul is calling us to here. Serving in humility. And our goal is that as we do so, people will see Christ's love in us 
and they'll want to experience that love for themselves. Humility plus service equals love. Now, you might ask yourself, wait a minute, big boy, why does humility plus service equal love? Why is love the end point? Why is love the sum of humility and service? Couldn't we add up those two factors and end up somewhere else? Why does love come into play at all? Or, if you're of a certain age, you might say, what's love got to do with it? Paul has an answer for us, and it's in 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage. And as we look at the answer Paul gives us to that question, we want to do it in the same context as we did when we looked at this passage before. Not in the terms of romantic love, but in the terms of the love that we're asked to show other people as believers in Jesus. Listen to what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love means everything. If we do not live our lives filled with God's love, we're missing something. We either have a whole lot to learn about who God is and how much he loves us, or we have a whole lot to learn about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. God is love. If I put everything he has given me to the exact use he intends, but I do so without having God's love in my heart and showing that love to others, I've missed the point. Without love, I'm not a God follower. I'm a fraud. Love is the difference. So whatever we do with our lives, let's make sure we're devoted to one another in love. Let's pray. Father God, we love you, and we thank you for the way that you've gifted us, Lord. We thank you that you've brought us into the body of believers. Help us to fulfill the role you've given us in humility, to serve others in love, Lord, so that they can see the extent of the love you have given us, and that our love for them will draw them to you so that they can become disciples of yours as well, Lord. We thank you for everything you do to us, for the way that you've blessed us, and we pray all of this in your son's holy and precious name.